This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to the Paddle and Fin Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Yak Gadgets. For all your fine quality kayak fishing accessories. Go to yakgadget.com. Pelican cases, cooler, and lighter. Go to pelican.com. And the 153 Bait Company. Draw your heart and soft bait needs. Go to the 153angler.com. Now let's join our special guest around the campfire. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of Feather and Fur. Brad Hurlbus here. And today we're going north of the border to Canada, and my special guest is Guido Di Cesare. And I'm pretty sure I actually nailed that name on the first try, so I, I really expect a little love for that. But we're going to bring Guido in right now. Hey, Brad, you got hey, Guido. It. Nailed it. I, I know. I thought I did. I was really. I'm real happy about that. That's a first, I think. Well, you know what? Have you know what? I, I'm. I was named after my grandfather, and. Um, Every day, I probably have to spell my name two or three times when I'm on the phone talking to someone. So you got it right the first time. Kudos to you. I, I, I write notes, and I write notes in what I feel like is the actual pronunciation versus how it's spelled. I'm sure I didn't spell your name anywhere close to what it's actually like. But I know exactly what you mean because my last name is Herlebus. And at work, that's my email address is my first name and last name. And I can't, I count, I can't count how many times in a day I have to pronounce or spell that out. And it's like... V A no not V B B is in boy. <laughs> so I know exactly how you feel with the complicated last name. Yeah, thanks. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, and I'm real excited to talk about the differences between between the north of the border and south of the border. Um, from I I've, I was I was in Canada once in my life. Uh, I went up there when I was younger, fishing with my dad, and that was well before I took hunting on myself. Um, I didn't grow up in a hunting family. So I'm curious to know, like, did you grow up in a hunting family or did you kind of take it on on your own? Well, well, my father was a hunter and uh, my father was uh, his, his occupation. He's long since been retired. He's 85 now, but he, um, he was, he had his own business. He was a contractor. Okay. And so uh, he was able to set aside time in the fall because it was his own business. Uh, and one of his passions was hunting. Now we were primarily upland hunters later in life. After he retired, he became a big game hunter. So he's harvested a couple of moose. 
And for anyone that's a moose hunter up in Ontario, it's usually a gang hunt. And, um, you know, guys will go 20 years. You might be on a gang for 20 years and you just weren't the lucky guy that, that the moose didn't jump out in front and you weren't the guy to pull the trigger. Somebody else in your gang might have actually pulled the trigger. And so my father was lucky enough in his, his, his time uh, belonging to a moose hunting gang. He actually harvested two moose himself. And he harvested a bunch of deer in retirement as well. But when I was growing up, we were small game hunters, primarily upland. And where, okay. where we were growing up, it was primarily rough grouse and woodcock. Sure, sure. I mean, that's my passion is rough grouse and woodcock. And we're going to get it. But I'm really curious on the gang hunting thing. because. So are you allowed to share tags then? So is it one tag that can be shared between a group of people? Yeah. Now, I'm not an expert on on the, the moose hunting uh, lottery process it is a lottery okay. and my understanding of it is is that uh, depending upon the region you're in in Ontario uh, the more people that you have in your gang it increases your odds of getting a tag and you and you share that tag amongst the gang okay that makes sense um in Wisconsin we can kind of do something something similar um, during our gun day season you are allowed to harvest a deer under someone else's tag as long as they're in your hunting party and within shouting distance so we do we do driven hunts at um, driving deer is a long time tradition in Wisconsin and you'll get a group of five or ten people or 15 together and you'll put some as like um some at the end of a push. And then you'll actually like push swamps or marshes and the really thick stuff they don't want to get out of. And you're actually able to share tags in that way in Wisconsin. So I was really curious to know how that worked. It's just for the similarities of it. Well, that's similar too. like we have driven hunts. Depends where you are in Ontario. A lot of regional differences. Uh, Ontario is a it's a huge province. It's uh, it's massive. So, for example, I live in southern Ontario. I'm about an hour away from Toronto. Uh, my next door neighbor is originally from a town called Red Lake, Ontario, which is up near the Manitoba border. As he likes to joke, it's where the road ends. And so <laughs> if we were to drive from where we live now to where he grew up, it's a 21-hour drive, and you're still in Ontario. That's crazy. That, that I can't, like, 21 hours is what it takes for me to get to Florida. Well, you know, funny enough, I've driven to Florida a couple of times, and to get to the top of the state, the northernmost most part of the state, I think it was 17 hours. So sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy how, I mean, that's, that just shows you the mass, the land mass that Canada is. I mean, that's just one province. Yeah. It's huge. And depending on where you are in the province, there's different traditions in terms of driven hunts. Some parts of the province, you can actually use hounds to uh, okay. drive deer. Um, so there's, there's some regional differences. Where I live, like if you get into the uh, into the the countryside, the farm country, it's very common to have a driven hunt. And there's also guys that just you know they'll sit in a tree stand all day, or they'll they'll post. And so it it really all depends on the tradition in your area, and what suits you best in terms of your your temperament and your disposition. Sure, and that makes sense. I mean, a lot of a lot of hunting comes down to traditions. Um, you don't see as much drives around here anymore. I think that was a slightly older tradition. You have a lot more tree stand hunters now, but that tradition's still alive, especially in certain groups, kind of like what you said, um, those regional differences. Now, granted, we're talking on a much smaller scale of just different areas of Wisconsin, but 
it's amazing to me how different like the Northwoods of Wisconsin is compared to like where I am just outside of Madison, like a metropolitan area. And we have, a, I mean, my area is known to not be very big in hunters. Like it's known to not have that type of demograph, demograph. but well, there's a strong hunting population here, but it's a, it has completely different traditions and like around here than it does like say when you get up North. Yeah. Yeah. Same, th same thing in Ontario. A lot of regional differences, uh, uh, you know, it, different types of hunting are are still very popular. I would say that, uh, unfortunately, I, I'm seeing less upland hunters every year. And I think some of that is because uh, the, the traditional areas for upland, they're becoming more urbanized. And so there's sure. it's harder to get access. Um, it's it's. You know, if you have a dog and if you have a big running dog, it's tough to find a, a place to let a big running dog do what it does. And so in general, you know, it's a little tougher to, to, to upland hunt compared to, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Sure. I can see. I, I see that around here, too, with the expansion of subdivisions and everything else. And I was actually just at my grouse camp two weeks ago and I ran into another grouse hunter there that had been going there for since he was 10 and he was in his fifties and he goes, you know, it's nice to see someone that doesn't have gray in their beard finally. Yeah. Which, which kind of, I mean, he's, and he brought up a valid point. Most of the upland, and I saw quite a few people from out of state, um, different parts of the country, all the way from Texas to South Carolina. We're all up there that same weekend, Maine, um, not Maine, I'm sorry, Vermont. Um, but they were all older. They were all in their late fifties, early sixties. And I don't know if that's because it was during the week but if people are taking vacation, that shouldn't necessarily matter. But he brought up a really good point. As a whole, I, I think upland hunters are an aging group, which also hurts, like what you said, like it's getting harder to do it because there's less land. And then if you don't have that newer population coming up, it actually worries me that these traditions might start to get lost. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of anecdotally seeing the same thing. Like my son, who is uh, 19 now, and uh, I started him hunting at 12 years old. And I would say that he's more of a waterfowler than an upland hunter. Now that might change, you know. I think it, I think it will. I mean, I see, I've seen that change in a lot of people actually, because I started, when I first started hunting and took it on myself, I was renting a farmhouse and it was filled with ducks and geese. So I got into waterfowl and I actually stumbled into grouse hunting with a buddy of mine because his dad did it and that passion just ignited. But I don't know. And that was a few years later though. I, I don't, I don't know why there's such a draw for waterfowl to a younger generation, but I mm -hmm. see that consistently though. I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I know that in terms of uh, when he, my son came on at 12 years old and me being his mentor and we have rules in place here where, uh, for, for the first few years, you can only share one gun between the mentor and the, and the, uh, and the junior hunter. And okay. so it was just easier for me to do that in a duck blind sure. as opposed to doing it upland hunting where, where, you know, when safety is the concern, especially when someone's starting out, um, you know, being, being at, you know, a foot away and not moving and not having to worry about dodging trees and bushes uh it just gave me a little bit of comfort too so i think i think that may be the reason i kind of 
it was just easier to be a waterfowl hunter at that stage than to be an upland hunter. That makes perfect sense too, because it's easier to control the environment. Um, mm -hmm. You're talking, if you're set up on shore, set up in a boat blind, however you are, it's a very confined area and you have a lot of control over what happens in like right around you. Whereas with upland hunting, especially for us grouse and woodcock guys, I mean, if you can easily mount your gun, you're probably in the wrong habitat. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know how tough it is just to walk through that bush. Now imagine if you have to trail you know, a 12 year old who's carrying a shotgun and you got to really keep an eye on him. It's, it, it's a lot tougher doing that than just sitting in a duck blind. Agreed. 100%. Um, but you grew up chasing grouse and woodcock then you said. Yeah. So I'm assuming you grew up with dogs as well. Well, that's a funny story. When not, when I was. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I, uh... We're already into good stories. Yeah. Yeah. My, my father, when, when I was growing up as a teenager, uh, now, when I when I got my license, the earliest you could get it in Ontario at that time was 15. OK. OK. And so and, and the standard age was 16. But if you if you had parental permission, you could get it at 15. So I got it at 15. Um, my dad had an English pointer back then. And right. the typical hunt went something like this. Uh, load the dog and the gear into the truck, drive to the hunting spot, open the truck door watch pointer immediately run to the horizon and, li and, <laughs> and listen to my dad yell at the pointer. That was pretty much the standard hunt. And so uh, now in hindsight, I, I realized that that dog was just too much dog for, for us. Sure. Um, my dad being a business owner, didn't have the time, the appropriate amount of time to dedicate to training the dog. And really he, di he didn't have the knowledge or the skill set to train the dog either. Sure. And so that, that was our first dog. It wasn't a great experience, nothing against English pointers. There's some great English pointers out there. And I think, you know, every breed has good dogs. Uh, but what really kind of flipped the switch for me is that one of his buddies had a German short hair and that dog's name was star. And that dog really was a star. Like it was, especially in comparison to our dog, it's, it sure. seemed just, you know, it didn't run away. It actually, you know, hunted within a reasonable range. It pointed things, it retrieved things. And so it, that really, I guess, led me down the path of wanting a German short hair pointer. That makes sense. I mean, it, I've changed breeds over time, um, but it's all like those experiences, right? So you had a great experience over a GSP and you started to understand as you got older, the amount of training it took and, where the English pointer didn't necessarily have the training required. So I, I completely understand why you would fall in love with that breed, especially after, after the first situation you had with your dad's dog. I get it. Yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. What type of dog do you have? I have a wired hair pointing Griffon. Oh, they're, they're nice dogs. Yeah. Um, I wanted a dog that could handle colder weather for duck hunting. It's not my passion, but I do enjoy getting out duck hunting. And I want to, and at being a grouse and a woodcock hunter, everything I read about that breed is they're a very close ranging dog. They've been, I've seen him referred to lately as an old man's dog. <laughs> um, but I want, I, my, my favorite part about walking those woods is watching the dog work. And I didn't want to, and I, and there's GSPs that hunt close enough, uh, nothing against GSPs by any means. Um, all breeds can hunt close, right? I mean, it's hard to make a dog hunt far. But it's easy to bring a dog in to have them hunt close. That's just training. 
but I wanted a dog. I wanted to have a dog that I could watch work because that's my favorite part. And before my um, before Pippa my Griff, I had a lab, and he's what actually led me to upland hunting. As he wasn't a great duck dog, he was too high strung. He would he'd be pretty steady, but after an hour of boredom, he wanted to run. And we were up north at a duck camp, and my best friend's dad, who became a mentor of mine for hunting, is like, "Let's go grouse hunting." Like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, just walk. <laughs> like, okay, I can do that. I'm like, what do I do with the dog? Keep him close. All right, my dog's really well trained. Not a problem. I keep the dog close. And uh, my friend who I was up there with, he has a setter. And I'm like, well, she points, right? Yeah, I'm like, that's fine. I've worked really, really hard on a whistle sit because it's a duck dog. So I can, I can get my dog. My dog will sit on a whistle. We're fine. We're good. And he just took to it like it was his passion like he That's loved great. running those woods and watching yeah. his excitement and i knew every time i hunted behind him if there was a bird within his range of scent we were going to be pulled that way like i had a hundred percent faith in my dog and i followed him around the woods like i didn't know what i was doing it's probably why i was a better grouse hunter then than i am now because i think he just was a just one of those upland dogs which just got it and even if we weren't in good habitat and I wasn't making necessarily the right habitat decisions, I knew, he, like, he would just figure out a way to find a bird somehow. I, I don't know. It, he was So that that's kind of what led me to wanting a closer working dog because I just enjoyed watching him work those woods so much. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm similar in that regard in terms of I don't need to see my dog 100% of the time, but I want to see him at least 50% of the time. Sure. And, and uh a, a friend of mine who's actually a dog trainer and he 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 likes his big running dogs he likes his english center setters and english pointers and he, and he's done the field trial circuit and he just loves a dog that gets out there checks in once in a while like for him if he sees the dog cross the the trail you know 100 yards up for for just a split second for him that dog's in control right like that that right. is and I, that's not for me. And part of it is, is where I do a lot of my grouse hunting up near my, we call them cottages and some places they call them camps and some places they call them cabins. Our part of Ontario, they call them cottages. So where I do a lot of my grouse hunting up by the cottage, it's a lot of logging roads. And it's, once you get off the logging road, the bush is thick. Sure. And so my, uh, my, um, I had a, I had a, a GSP that passed in the spring. She was 13. She was a, a, a farther ranging dog. And there were times she had a strong prey drive. She was a good dog, but there were times, especially as she got older, she ranged farther. Like she'd be out and she, you know, like, and, and the more you got into a hunt and she didn't see a bird, the farther she ranged because she wanted to get that bird. And so there were times where she was, you know, 150 yards in the bush, which for a lot of guys doesn't seem like a long distance, but in the grouse woods, when you're out past 50 yards, you can't see the dog anymore. And to try to walk to that dog through that thick bush, you sound like a moose going through the bush and very seldom would a grouse actually hold for her. Sure. so I like a closer working GSP, you know, and everyone wants that magical GSP that, you know, is close working or that that's close working in the thick bush. And when you go out in the prairies, it ranges appropriately. So, you know, it, uh, it's a work in progress. That's, and, and that's just it. I mean, if I'm hunting pheasant fields, I want my dog to range, but we work so much on staying close. Like she just, she won't 
push those limits as much unless if we're not around birds if we're not catching if we're not if she's not finding a lot of birds she will continue to range out slightly farther but i can't falter on that because when we spend most of our time in the thicker stuff i've worked on her staying close but yeah. i completely understand like why guys want those long like those far ranging dogs especially because i talked to a group out of arizona hunt quail and the amount of miles they cover and the amount of miles the dog covers is just out of this world and I don't like with how my dog hunts. I don't, I don't know if it, it it's not the right dog for that application. It, it, yeah. it just isn't. Yeah. Well, I see it when I, when I go out. So I hunt uh, primarily in Ontario and then every year we go out to Saskatchewan for a week. And I've been doing that this year was my 16th consecutive year going out to Saskatchewan and we hunt upland and waterfowl. And okay. so when we're out in Saskatchewan, and that's big country. Uh, you, you, you like a dog that can get out there and range out there and cover cover that ground. And so, um, you know, I can see when you talk about your, your your guys in Arizona, it's it would be similar out in the prairies. You want that big ranging dog. So what are you hunting out in the prairies then for upland? For upland where, where we are... Uh, we're not we're not allowed to hunt pheasant because we're not Saskatchewan residents. Okay. So, so we hunt uh, uh, sharp tail grouse and Hungarian partridge. Got it. Got it. Uh, we have a small little sliver in Wisconsin for sharp tail grouse. We're not allowed to hunt them, but we have a small little sliver of habitat in the northwestern part of the state. So we still do have a population here, but that is actually a bird on my list that I, I I've kind of just started this the other day. It's, it's really, really new. I decided I kind of want to spend the next, I don't know, however many years it takes. I really want to try to take one of each species of grouse that's legal to hunt. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a great goal. It might be on, it might be unattainable. We'll see. It might take until I retire, to be honest, and have the time to actually get out there and travel, but it's something I want to do. Um, so it's, it, and I have done some research on that, but the habitat for sharptail is completely different than the habitat for Roth. Oh yeah. Like it, we have a, like sort of the North Western part of the province of Ontario has sharp tails. Um, and they're kind of, they're more of a mixed wood bird up there. Okay. Okay. Uh, I don't know many, many guys that would go up to North Northwestern Ontario to hunt sharp tails. Uh, the locals up there do, but I don't think it's the type of bird or they don't have the, the volume of birds there that would warrant going all the way up there. Remember, it's like, you know, a, a 20 hour drive. So a lot right. of guys wouldn't do that. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but in Saskatchewan, it's a prairie bird. And so it's actually a, 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 a great bird for dogs, for pointing dogs. They sure. hold well, uh, especially early in the season, later in the season, uh, they'll, they'll flush wild at quite a distance okay. after they've been shot once or twice. Sure. Uh, this year was a good year for for sharp tail numbers and for hunt numbers where we hunt in Saskatchewan, uh, and it's recovering. They had an ice storm. I'm thinking. I'm trying to remember here. Five or six years ago, that really knocked back the population, and they cut back the limits because of that. Now they're starting to increase the limits again because the birds are coming back. Well, that's a good sign. I mean, that's a, that's that shows positivity for like the habitat and everything else that the habitat's still there, and that, that's a really good sign. Yeah. Very much so. You don't now when we go to Saskatchewan, we also it really is a, a mixed hunt between waterfowl and upland. And so one of the reasons I like a GSP 
is because it's a versatile dog. Right. Uh, and I've become over the years from being purely a, a upland hunter. And, you know, with, with my father back in the day, we always were opening day duck hunters. Okay. Sure. But we never really hunted beyond opening day. And so now I'd say my days in the field, depending on the year, are, are roughly 50-50 split between upland and waterfall. Okay. And uh, a lot of that I owe to my, I call him my waterfall mentor, the guy that invited me out west for the first time. Um, funny story how I met him. Uh, we worked for the same company, but he worked in the adjacent city. And he moved from, from that city to, I call it my office. And he was the new guy <laughs> in the office, the senior guy. And uh, as I was walking by the new guy's office, I noticed a, a, a painting on the wall, which was ducks landing in a marsh. And so I just kind of stopped to admire the painting. And as I, I'm, I'm admiring the painting, he walks up behind me and says, oh, you like that painting? I said, yeah, I do a little bit of duck hunting. And that was it. That was the, that was the, the beginning and the end of, you know, of him taking some interest in me. Uh, it turns out that he he was a past president of the Ducks Unlimited Canada. Oh, wow. And so, yeah. And so just from that, um, it, you know, the next year he, he invited me out west and he kind of gave me the conditional invite, which sure. was, you know, this is just for one year. And, you know, I, I think he was thinking, you know, well, we have to test this guy out to see if, you know, if he, if he's a, if he's a good guy and if, you know, if he's not going to turn the camp upside down and, you know, if, if he passes the test and he always teases me, he tells me I'm still on probation after six <laughs> years. <laughs> so one day they might require a membership and you don't have your card yet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so uh, he, he was a real influence in terms of my waterfowl hunting. He really, taught me about waterfowling, waterfowl hunting, especially out on the prairies. Um, and so it's funny, you know, it's funny how I know just before this call, we were talking about how, you know, doing this, you meet all kinds of people in the hunting community. And so, you know, something serendipity and, you know, it always, I think I'm a little older than you. It's, it makes an impression on me how such a, you know, maybe a kind word, which, you know, you think might be insignificant or what you think might be a very small gesture can have a significant impact on people throughout their life. So that small gesture, here we are 16 years later, I've been going to Saskatchewan with it. So right. it, it's amazing. All because of, of a painting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which, um, so for waterfall hunting out there, is there a lot of potholes or there's a lot of fields? Uh, it is both. Now, okay. this year was probably, it was, it was the driest year I've seen in 16 years. And you're, uh, you're not alone. We're still real low on water around here and we've been fighting the drought. Not as bad as west of us in the Dakotas, but yeah, it's been a dry year. Very dry out there. Uh, driest in 16 years. Uh, we were still able to do reasonably well on cranes. We don't really target geese, but there was still a lot of geese around. We also had the misfortune of having a crazy hot week. It was, I'm, I'm talking Celsius here up in Canada, 25 to 30 degrees Celsius, which is like 77 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay? That's hot. That's, it's that's, hot. That's really warm, especially when you start talking upland hunting, running prairie for sharp tail. Very hot. And, uh, and the, 
you know, even for the for the the ducks, they didn't need the calories to stay warm, so they weren't moving. And a lot of the northern birds had not come down. Sure. So it was, and a lot of the sloughs uh, were dried out. I think in our area, which we tend to, to hunt about a one hour radius around our homestead. I, I'd say, you know, where there'd be hundreds of sloughs, maybe there was 10 sloughs that we found that had water in. That's, that's and, a and huge change. Ducks. What's that? That's, that's a huge change. Oh, it I was, mean, it was huge. Yeah. So more hunting, duck hunting. more hunting pressure this year, I'm assuming as well. Cause I believe the border's open again, correct? Actually, uh, the border is open to Americans. Now there's some, uh, you have to be double vaxxed. You have to do a COVID test before you cross the border. And there's an app you have to fill out. It's called the Arrive Canada app. Okay. All right. So our, our group that goes out, we have, we call it the C team for Canadian. There's four of us of which uh, this gentleman, uh, uh, Todd Wright, past president of DU Canada is on the C team, but he's sort of the linchpin because there's also a group of Americans that come out the week after. Okay. And we also have a, like a one day crossover. And so we call them the A team. Got and it. So for America. <laughs> and so uh, they're from, one of the guys is from Maine. Another guy is from um, the uh, Baltimore area. Another fellow's from uh, uh, North, Car North Carolina. And so, um, they had no problem crossing the border this year, whereas last year they could not come. Right. Cause I ran into, I ran into that last year in the grouse woods. So we did my grouse. We did, we, this was our 12th year of grouse camp and it's historically it's been the second week of October. Uh, last year we pushed it back to the fourth weekend of October thinking less leaves, but the weather turned on us quick and we actually had snow. I was building snowmen. It was, it was fun. Um, but it really made challenging hunting. Um, but what I did notice is where we were hunting is there was a lot of hunting pressure. I mean, I ran into 50 from different states. And what I found out from pretty much all of them that I talked to is we normally go to Canada, but the border's closed. Yeah, I can see that. I can, you know what? We did not see a lot. We did not see a lot of competing hunters this year. There wasn't a lot of pressure this year. Interesting. And I, and I, I think maybe it had to do with the fact that it was, it was a little onerous, you know, you have to be double vaxxed, you have to get the test and you have to do this app. And so I think for, for some guys, I think they maybe thought, let's give it another year. Sure. And, and, and I think a lot of the outfitters are still hurting up there because they're, they really count on the Americans to come up. And uh, I don't think this was a great year for, for visiting hunters. So I, and I've never been to Canada for hunting. It's Saskatchewan is on my list of places to go because you see like what it can be up there for bird numbers. Um, I'm not sure a lot of people even necessarily knew if it were to open back up either, to be honest. I think that might and it's really hard because you have guys trying to plan trips a year out. And yeah. if the border's closed, it's hard to make these trips a last minute decision or well, are we going back to Canada? Or are we gonna go somewhere in the States, maybe go to the Dakotas or something along those lines? And I can understand, like the planning aspect's got to be a challenge for all of them as well, because how do you bet an entire trip on the possibility of a border not being open? Oh yeah, like it, it's been it's been tough on the uh, outfitters for sure. Very tough. And that's and that's one thing I don't think a lot of people realize is um like, and I've had this discussion as well in northern Wisconsin because come later in the year, 
it's hunters and it's snowmobilers. And as less hunters go up north, like those, all the bars and the restaurants, and there's such a huge economic effect that hunters have on an area, especially when it's a destination area. Like Saskatchewan's a destination area for a lot of waterfowl hunters in the States. I've had multiple conversations about that. It's been on my list for years. So you close that off. That I mean, I can only imagine now, I mean, going into what's basically the second year of it. Yeah. How much those struggle, how much all those outfitters out there are struggling. Oh, I think I think they've had a very hard time. Like I know uh, some of the out some of the outfitters locally here in Ontario. Um close to the Detroit border that count on some of the Americans coming over to waterfowl hunt. We've got some, some pretty good uh, canvas back hunting in Lake St. Clair. Okay. And uh, you know, for a lot of people shooting a nice bull bull can is on their bucket list. Oh, absolutely. And so uh, I know last year, the outfitters, the Canadian outfitters were, they kind of switched tact and they started marketing to Canadians for the first time because they just typically market to the Americans. Right. Sure. Um, and so I think they, they've been suffering for sure. It's been tough on them. Which is a shame too. Um, Cause as you lose outfitters, it's hard for more to come back. Right. Like it's not an easy industry to get. It really isn't easy to start an outfitting company. Well, it is. You just have to stick a crazy amount of money into it and hope you can book a lot of slots. Yeah. Not a lot of people can actually do that. Yeah, it, it's you know I, I'm I don't know what the economics are of being an outfitter, um, and I, I'm sure it's like most industries. There's a very small percentage of the total that that make good money at it. Right. But I would imagine the vast majority are doing it maybe first and foremost for the love of hunting, and uh, you know they're using it to supplement their their income. Right. So if you have one or two bad seasons, it, uh, I'm sure it's painful. It has to be. I mean, I just see the impact on like the smaller restaurants and bars and little hotels in the Northwoods of Wisconsin. Um, Now, granted, last year was good because, well, there's a lot of extra out-of-state hunters. But overall, in general, over the past years with hunter decline, you can just see that less of an economic impact up there. Yeah. Yeah. Which which is a shame, which kind of goes all the way back to that. I don't see anybody without a gray beard anymore out in the, in, in the grouse woods, right? No, yeah. You know, and if, if you might be one of those guys, if you keep trying to trying to target every grouse that there is out there, eventually you'll be one of those guys. <laughs> you spend enough time with it. Well, I'm getting more and more gray hair every single day. So I don't think it's, I only think it's a couple of years away if I let this grow out that it's going to be gray and I'm going to fit in with everyone else. So it sneaks up on you. I look at some of the old pictures and I think, who, who is that guy? He looks, you know, youthful and uh before you know it you're one of the guys with the gray hair exactly like you you're the 16th year in saskatchewan it probably like you think 16 like holy cow that's a really long time yeah yeah Same and you know it doesn't feel like 16 years right it every no. you feel like every year feels like it's the first time and that's the same with so excited and th- right, and it's something to look forward to because yeah. you, you've done 16 years i've done the same grouse camp with the same guy for 12 years now it's something we talk about year round yeah yeah. Oh, it, it always starts, you know, right around February, the emails start, <laughs> start flying and you start ribbing each other. And, and the buildup is almost as much fun as actually as the hunt. And the traditions that come out of it as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's uh, 
there's a, a lot of scuttlebutt that happens around the kitchen table in Saskatchewan. Uh, <laughs> we've all heard the same jokes four or five or six times, and we all know what the next guy is going to say in terms of, oh, here it comes again. There's that, that you know, that joke about whatever it's coming, right? And you kind of tease him about, and then you actually laugh more when he gets the joke wrong than when he gets it right. <laughs> you know, it's funny because that, that kind of passes through like, uh, we did a deer camp with my best friend's father and he had people come up and there was a gentleman there, great guy, Mitch. Um, he passed away a couple years ago, but he, I can't, I mean, I heard the same, like the same goose hunting story out of him. I don't know, probably four or five times in the seven years I was up there. So I know exactly what you're saying. And it's like, but looking back and, and like, we would joke, be like, man, he told the goose story again, but now it's like, I'd love to hear the goose story again. You know what I mean? It's just, it's just crazy how that works, how you can laugh about it. And the camp becomes so like almost scripted in a way, but it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and you know, we're fortunate too, because we've been renting the same farmhouse for me, it's been 16 years, but for some of the other guys, it's been 25 years. They've been renting the same farmhouse. Okay. Wow. And so we've become very good friends with the owners of the farmhouse and with some of the town folk. Sure. And, uh, you know, when, you, when you go back to small town, Saskatchewan, you're, you're kind of going back to what now is family. And so they stop in every night, you know, while we're eating dinner, not, you know, they're always invited to dinner, but usually they just come by for a drink. They want to hear how we've done for the day. Okay. Sure. Uh, and they, you know, they and they end up telling the you know the same jokes every year, right? And right. they're just great salt of the earth people, and they're they're they've become dear friends. And so that's part of the the tradition. You look forward to seeing them every year, right? I mean, it's the friendships that come from that community, and and we're really are a tight knit community. Uh, we were joking about that before we started talking, and it's amazing how when you get a group of people together, even just a couple people together, that have the same passion for. And it's so easy with upland hunting because the passion is dogs, the passions, the birds, the passions, the habitat. And it's so strong. It's not much different than deer, I guess, or other, but I, I'm more driven towards upland. So I really see the passion there. It's so easy just to all of a sudden, like, like build these friendships because you have such a like-minded, like passionate interest. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I was joking about, uh, Todd, when he said, well, you know, you, this is just a one-year thing, one-time deal, right? Right. So what he really was saying was, you know, are you going to fit in to the group? Exactly. Are, are you, are you going to be like-minded? Right. And, and I know for us, you know, there's a few things that are, uh, there's no negotiation. First and foremost, you have to be safe, okay, right. when you're out in the field, right? And so um, you just, you know, I, everyone's always watching the new guy. Okay, does he handle his gun safely? Can I... You know, do I can I relax around them? Right. And so that's right. always the sort of the, the first first test that you have to pass. Do you handle your gun safely? And then there's things around, you know what, does he really have a passion for hunting or is it right. is he here just to shoot? And so, right. you know, if you're, if you're a shooter and there's nothing wrong with being a shooter, you know, uh, you don't you know, you don't necessarily have to be a hunter. Right. And right. so and then the, there's the whole thing about does he enjoy eating the game? And I say he, cause it's, it's our group is a bunch of guys sure, sure. as well. My, my daughter, who's now 17 has her hunting license as well. 
but uh, and so you know, does he enjoy eating the game? So for us, it's uh, you know, it's the full cycle. It's it's the the hunting, uh, uh, the uh, the cooking of the bird. You know, uh, that's a celebration, enjoying eating the bird. And then you know, there's always the thing: do they pitch in on a camp? You don't, you know, right? You want that pulls their weight, right? Right. Uh, and you kind of bring up a good thing there because depending on the camp, I mean. I know I've I know a group of guys that they go out there and they their goal is to shoot limits. That's what they do. I mean, they want to go out into the marsh, they want to shoot their limits. That's how they gauge their experience. Yeah. Whereas our camp, we're there for the experience. The limit doesn't really have much to play on that. A limit is amazing. Yeah. Shooting one bird sometimes is just as good as shooting a dozen for six six per guy. Yeah. I mean, because it's all about the entire, for us, it's about the entire experience. It's about cooking up some venison that we got from deer last year or sitting around drinking whiskey around a campfire telling stories or just like it's the whole experience at our camp. And I completely understand the probation thing because if we brought someone into our camp, which is really, really small, smaller than yours because it's just me and another guy, right? <laughs> but, if, but if we brought someone else into that camp, they're going to have to fit in with why we're there, which is for an entire experience. It's to watch the dogs. It's the beauty of the birds. It's watching the sunrise. It's a little bit of fishing. It's it's an entire weekend experience. It's not, man, we only got two grouse today. We should have got five. Yeah. No, that's not that for me personally. That that has very little impact on my entire trip. Yeah, I, I I'm like minded in that regard. And for me, it's been a progression, right? Like when I was younger, and I just started hunting, you know, it it was more about the the quantity, right? The limits, you know. My first of my first black duck, or my first right. mallard, or my, you know, my first rough grouse. You know, that was, uh, that was the priority back then, but. You know, as I've done that, now it's become more about the quality. You know, the the aesthetics of the experience, right? It's uh, like you met. You asked, is it field shooting or, or slew shooting out west? It's both, but I prefer a good slew shoot because I love to see the ducks cup and while you're hiding in the reeds and commit. And if you know when, when you when that shot and you 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 connect and the sound of the duck splashing on the water and watching the dog go out to retrieve the duck in the water, to me there's something to that that is a little more than a field shoot. And sure. so, you know, it's the and and when it comes to upland hunting, uh, there's certain certain covers we hunt that are just great dog covers, and I love hunting those covers with my dog and just watching the dog work and slam on point and there are covers that are big enough and they have, they have the right kind of cover that are really conducive to dog work. Sure. I, I enjoy like harvesting one bird from that cover for me is worth harvesting, you know, five birds from some other cover for whatever reason is there's just, it's the aesthetics of it. So right. being able to, I mean, if the cover's right, like you're saying, you probably can watch the dog work a little more. You yeah. can watch that. You can watch the dog as it gets it gets birdie and it starts to figure things out. Maybe that bird's running and it's on a trail and you can see it work and all of a sudden the dog cuts back hard because it's like, wait, the scent went this way. And you can watch that puzzle in their mind start to come together and all of a sudden they're like, they get that big face full of scent and all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I got to stop. 
And then like everything goes quiet because I still hunt with a bell. I love I love the traditional sound of a bell. I don't I don't know if I'll ever really move away from that. Um, And I still use GPS as well, but I just love that traditional sound of a bell. And then all of a sudden, it's like the woods go still. Yeah. And then it's like things, and it's it's almost like things just got real because it's like, oh, this is kind of what we're here for. And now the dog has, and now all of a sudden the dog, which I had expectations of to to find this bird for me, now is now has got expectations like, hey. I found this bird. You better do your part so I get to retrieve it. And like the roles reverse. And it's like, all right, now I have to do my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if the dogs could talk, we'd be in trouble. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, Griffs are notorious for their side eye. And I get it way too often. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. But you know what? What you said about the whole experience, like, you know, you said you were talking about, uh, you know, uh, heart, uh, cooking the venison, right. And, and coming. So part of what our tradition is, is Todd, who we call Mr. President. I don't know if you ever read any Gord McQuarrie, uh, stuff, but back in the day he had this, he called it the old duck hunter association. And there was a, the uh, fellow there called Mr. President. He was famous for wearing his Brown Mackinac. And so we call Todd, Mr. President. And he, he likes that. And, uh, we rib him about him. But uh, uh, he puts together the meal plan and it's like, okay, tonight, Guido, it's your, it's your night. And so what are you going to cook? And, uh, you know, he'll say, you know what, that one meal you cooked three years ago was really good. I'd like to see that again. Right. <laughs> and, so, and, so, and so part of it is everyone wants to come to camp with a good meal. Like, and, and sure. uh, you know, Kudos to Todd. He he wrote a book which was sort of a, a summary of our experiences out west. And every chapter at the end of the chapter, which usually had a humorous spin to it, there was a recipe that we actually use in camp, right? I, and I'm not flogging this book because it's not in print anymore. Okay. But this is it right here. It's called Prairie Birds Hunt, Cook, Celebrate. And that pretty much sums up what we do. We hunt, we cook, and we celebrate when we're out there. So it's the whole experience. Sure. It's not just... It's not just um, it's not just about limits for us, right? And if that's what it is for you, then you know more power to you. I was there at one point in time. But it, I but think that's everyone was me anymore. I think everyone was because I was as well. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's uh, and I started hunting later. I was twenty three before I started hunting, so I don't know if that's an inexper- like an immaturity. I don't want to say immaturity because it's not immature. I don't know if that's just what new hunters gravitate towards to kind of. Pr- prove maybe to themselves that I can, maybe it's, maybe it's an easy bar to achieve. Right. So I didn't know what I was doing. What, what do I set that against? Well, there's a limit. I guess my goal is to get this limit. And I don't know if that's how I established myself until I knew what I was doing or perceived that I actually knew what I was doing. Um, But it's amazing how, like you said, like it changes, like my, my whole thought process has changed because it's far less about, how many birds I've shot compared to the entire experience out in those fields now. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? And, 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 and in, in the interest of full disclosure, if I go several hunts back to back and I get, I get, you know, skunked, you know, the idea of getting a limit looks pretty good. (laughs) So so you, you do want to get something when you go out, right? Right. There is a goal, right? There, yeah. like, you want to finish that entire circle. And 
I don't know if it's so much for me to, and I enjoy eating all the birds I harvest. I don't know if it's so much for the meal at the end of the day. I think a lot has to do with the look my dog gives me when she does all this work. And she's like, where's my retrieve? Where's my reward? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? There's been times where the dog worked so hard and it was a slow day and maybe we had one point all day. Right. And then you walk in and you whiff the shot. And I just felt terrible for the dog. Like I felt like I let the dog down. Oh, she did I, her job. I didn't do my job. I know that. I know that feeling all too well. Um, I, one hunt in particular sticks out to me. Uh, Wisconsin doesn't have a good wild po pheasant population. They actually breed birds and plant them in fields. I love using it as like an early, like as a dog training tool, just to hold a whole bunch of bird contact. If you hit the field at the right time, because there's a lot of pressure. But I went out on a weekday and we must have been right behind the bird truck without realizing it. But it was crazy winds that day. I mean, 40, 50 mile per hour gusts. And these and those pheasants would get up and they would be gone. And I couldn't even come anywhere close to getting in front of them. And my dog put up probably 15 or 20 birds. And I don't think I took one. Yeah. That's I just I couldn't. I just couldn't get in front of him and the look on his face. And that was my lab. He's like, really, how hard do I need to work so I can put feathers in my mouth? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I always found high winds, like 40, you know, mile an hour gusts, almost impossible to hunt. I've had such, I've never had a lot of success in really gusty conditions. It's always been tough for me. I agree 100%. That's the last time I think I've tried to hunt winds that hard. If I have gone out, I've gone out then with the expectation that I, pr I probably won't even shoot. Like it'd have to be a really close flush and that bird would have to go directly into the wind and hit that stall before it turned. Back then I was younger and I'm like, oh, I want to shoot all these pheasants. And now it's like, I would rather have, a, I'd rather not shoot and make sure what shots I take are very, very clean ethical shot, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you, have you done much hun hunting? I've never hun hunted. No. Well, huns are notorious on a windy day. When you flush the covey, they just cup their wings into the wind and they're just like jets. They're just boom. They're gone. Sure. And uh, I've always found that like it, I've the occasional time where I've actually hit one in that situation, I can count on one hand because <laughs> They just, they're just magic. They cut their wings and bang, they're just, they just accelerate and they're gone. Right. So, so I don't know much about huns. That's not a bird. I've actually looked into hunting. It's not, we don't have a population at all in Wisconsin. I'd even have to look to see how far I'd have to go to hunt them. What? So it's a prairie bird then I'm assuming because you hunt them with the shark tails. Yeah. How big are they? Oh, they're, uh, I'm trying to think they're smaller than a rough grouse. They're bigger than a woodcock kind of in okay. between. Okay. Got it. Got they it. are uh, a, a great bird to hunt. They're a covey bird. Great for pointing dogs. Um, they tend to inhabit uh, grasses that are sort of shin high. Okay. All uh, right. Whereas, whereas a sharp tail will be in slightly taller grass. Huns will gravitate more towards agricultural fields. So they, they really like wheat. Uh, I've seen them in uh, in uh, lentil fields, um, but wheat is the wheat is definitely I I think if you find a uh, some prairie grass beside a wheat field 
or uh, and then if you can throw some alfalfa, alfalfa nearby, it's a good chance if it's a good hun year, a hun year you're going to find huns there. Got it. Whereas the sharp tails don't gravitate towards the uh, grain crops to the same degree. All right. So, um, and they're they're uh, just a they're great eating bird too. Uh, they're a, a white white meat bird, okay. um, and they're great bird to hunt. And that's got to be good for the dogs too, because I mean, if you're talking shin height, that's so easy for a dog to work. Oh yeah, they're they're easy for a dog to work now because they're in coveys. Like you, you can when you when a dog for the first when you when you first bring a dog out and it goes hunt hunting. I think the scent of the covey must do something for the dog because it really gets energized. And, it, it, you know, the dogs that I've seen, they really seem to just love the scent of a, a hun covey. They, they really get excited. Um, sure. Whereas, yeah. Whereas, you know, sometimes dogs, depending on the dog, they might not love woodcock. Okay. Um, and I even sharp tails. Occasionally I found a, a, the occasional dog that, uh, when it comes time to retrieve the sharp tail, sometimes I'll, I'll drop it. Okay. Not to the same degree that they would with a woodcock, but I've never seen that with, with hunts. Interesting. So, yeah. wonder if it's just cause it's such, such a strong scent. Cause it's a covey that the dog is just like, Oh, Oh, this is birds. That's my guess. Right. That's my right. guess. Cause it's so, not a solitude bird. It's it, you're talking that covey. I mean, that's just gotta be such an overload for their sense. It's like for their sense of smell. They just have to, I wonder if they just can't struggle for like if they struggle processing that much scent where they're less like, especially for the first time, they're like, what is this? I, I think that's what it is. Like that's when I look at their, you know, their body language, that seems to be what they're trying to like. They're just overwhelmed and it's really exciting to see. Now, cubby sizes are anywhere from five birds to 30 birds. Okay. And so, you know, if you, if, you, if the dog hits a 30 bird cubby, I can't imagine the amount of scent that the dog must be taking in. Right. It must be overwhelming, that, right? Right, it has to be. Yeah. And then I know we touched on this slightly, but and we just talked about it. So you also hunt a lot of woodcock. Yeah. Yeah. Which you don't hear like I'm I, I love hunting woodcock. Um I have to drive about three hours to get to good grouse habitat, but with the migration, I can hunt woodcock locally. And I'd much rather hunt woodcock than our pen raised pheasants. That just doesn't really do anything for me. Um, I know yeah. people love it, nothing against that. I prefer to I prefer to hunt woods to begin with. I prefer to hunt the woods for grouse and woodcock, so that's part of it. And I love chasing wild birds. Um, but you don't hear of a lot of people that actually go out and chase woodcock. That's that's like there's not a lot of grouse hunters. There's even less woodcock hunters. Well, I think that's true. Now, I, th I think I think for me, it's like you said, you can if you with the migration, uh, you can hunt local birds, right? You can right. when they when they're coming through. I don't I don't have to drive three hours to get into good grouse woods. Um, woodcock's a great bird for a pointing dog, right? It, it, it sits well, although I've noticed in, you know, over the years, they're, they're, they're running out from under a point much more than they were 20 years ago. That's, that's a change that I've noticed. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I just, there's something, something magical about woodcock. I just love, and the migration aspect is always trying to time it right. I, right. I love woodcock hunting. I enjoy it as well. I like the terrain too. Um, it's a little, it's, it's not, it's not the same as grouse. Um, I love walking like a lot of like my favorite spots are Creek bottoms, like with some yeah. woods, like with some younger woods along the edge, which you can just seem like you can walk for miles and you never have to backtrack. 
or you never have to circle around. Like there's, and like you said, they hold so tight and I've had some really, really magical woodcock hunts. One of them, my wife happened to be on it. It was one of the last hunts with my lab actually. And it was just this magical hunt where we hit the migration right and a flight must've just landed and 23 or 27 birds we put up in an hour and a half. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it was. And I looked at my wife afterwards and I'm like, you will, there's a very good chance I won't experience this again. And I'm pretty sure because you don't hunt with me every day, you will never experience a flight like this again because this was everything aligned for something like that. Yeah, that's special when that happens. You know, I've had a few days like that. Uh, and once you've had a day like that, you're always hoping and wishing for just one more time, right? I agree. I would, yeah. I'd love to see... I'd love to see my, my girl, cause I rescued her at six and I wouldn't say she is what she is. Cause we're always constantly working on training, but she'll never be what she could have been. Cause she missed all those pivotal years of training, but she's really started to figure things out. I've got her retrieving consistently retrieving Woodcock as well. And last year was her first um, point steady to the flush shot and retrieve out of Woodcock, which I am going to get mounted, which I'm getting mounted but I'd love to see her on one of those days where you have a good flight that dropped in. Cause I think, I think it would really even start to help with like just that click. Like even if she bumped maybe the first or second, like I, she'd just be so much bird contacts in such a short amount of time. It's just, as long as she doesn't get overwhelmed by it, I think it'd just be amazing to watch her really piece that together and really start to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you say over, I did have one day, with my uh, with one of my dogs, where the woods were just thick with woodcock, and and the dog could not take four steps without hitting another woodcock. It was too much. It was just overwhelming sure. for the dog, right? Um, but I I, re, I I remember that because this fellow I mentioned to you that was uh, a dog trainer and a trialer, right? He he, right. he did field trials. Uh, he he grabbed the dog and said, "We got to get out of here." He goes, "This is gonna." He goes, this is too much for the dog. We have to. And he he had way more experience than I had in terms of handling dogs. And I was kind of surprised. I thought, what, you know, what's going on here? And he said, we have to get out of here. There's just it's just he goes, this is too much for the dog. And so it uh, I did have one day where, where it was that like that. It, they were just too thick. You couldn't you couldn't take four steps without the woodcock bumping into one. And for a pointing dog, I can absolutely see that being a training nightmare because they can't yeah. if they can't take. If they run five, five, ten yards and all of a sudden they're back on point, like they can't determine the step. I mean, that for my dog at the time it was he was my lab, he was my flushing dog. As long as he stayed in range, man, he was just chasing birds, going crazy and loving it. But yeah. for a pointing dog, oh, I could I never thought about that. If they're in that thick, that actually could make for a whole world of different issues. <laughs> well, I've only experienced it once, so <laughs> you know, I, uh, I I hope I experience it again. Right. To have yeah. to have so many woodcock in a, in an area, one of your little hunts that you're like, we have to leave because it's too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it's just one time. It was just crazy, you know, splash everywhere. I don't know. I don't know what like within a, a one acre area, you couldn't walk 10 feet without bumping a woodcock. It was crazy. That's that's amazing. Yeah. And and you must and you must've just timed it right. The flight must've got in there. They must've settled down and they hadn't moved on yet. And it's all about 
it's almost luck, right? I mean, we know we have a general idea when migrations come through, but we don't know when individual migrating flocks of birds come through together. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's definitely an element of luck there, right? Right. We, you know, to the best of our ability, we try to, now I've hunted that, that cover many times. So I knew it was a good cover. Uh, you know, I kind of know from looking at the calendar when the woodcock flight is going to come through and it's not exactly the same every year, but it's close, right? I can look at the weather and see when the north wind is coming down and I can right. do some internet thing and find out from other guys if they're if they're getting into birds. Um, but, you know, I've hunted that cover 30 times. That was the only time it's ever been like that. Right. Yeah. So, so it was a little, of, a little bit of luck, right wind, yeah. right migration pattern and everything else. And you just happen to stumble in there at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny when you have one day like that, you just can't wait for, and you you might go, you might go 10 years, you might go 15 years and you, before you get another day like that. If you, I mean, there's a possibility you never get into birds. Like, I mean, to have something that special, I mean, there's a possibility that that truly was a once in a lifetime experience, which you always want to, you always want to, you're always holding out hope that you're going to stumble into that again. But there's a chance that that was just an experience you're never going to be able to duplicate, which is yeah. a part of what I love about the whole entire experience because every day is different but there's just some things where it's like that they're just so magical like and everything comes together it's like i don't know how to ever top this yeah there is something magical about you know being in the outdoors uh something magical about when you're when you're hunting too i think you're engaged you're not just you're not a, a passive spectator you're a participant uh in in nature when you're a hunter and it, you have an intimacy uh with nature that you know i love hiking i love canoeing and portaging but it's it's not the same level of intimacy with mother nature as when i'm hunting there's a connection there that uh, if you're not a hunter it's hard to explain to somebody I would agree completely. And that was very well stated. Uh, I haven't heard it stated that way, but you're a hundred percent right. I mean, and I, you're, I don't know how to explain it either. I don't know how to describe what that connection is. And it's not even just bird hunting, even when deer hunting, like even if you're just sitting in the woods, like you said, you're an active participant, you're not just sitting there. And maybe a photographer might get close to that maybe. Um, mm -hmm. But they don't get that full and experience that we get though. Cause it all comes to a circle at the end, which they would see. So yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. And it's really hard to put in words. Like I, I don't know how to put it in words. Yeah. It's uh, you know, very often people say, Oh, what does hunting mean to you? Right. It's hard. It's hard to put into words and, and it's meant different things for me at different times in my life. And um, you know, even, even in a season, it'll mean different things for me. Right. Right. Uh, but, you know, when you get down, when, when you try to get down to the very foundation of it. OK. And it, and if you ask 100 hunters, you might get 100 different answers because it because it means something. It, it's a very personal thing. Um, I'm not sure I've really figured it out yet, but there is an element of intimacy and being a participant in nature that is is part of that foundational discussion and i'm i i don't do a good good job of putting it into words it's uh i don't know it's it's something i'm i'm still 
trying to figure out and explore. I agree. I agree. And depending on the type of hunting, it changes as well for me. So like with deer hunting, it's a deer hunting I use as a time to reflect upon myself because the woods are silent. It's still, but with upland hunting, I almost use it almost as an escape to forget about everything. So I can focus on the dog, the woods and the experience currently on hand. So even depending on what type of hunting I'm doing, my answer was going to be different on what it truly means to me. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know what it's it i was i was uh grouse hunting up at the cottage last week and i had to do i had to put up some storm windows and so i had to do some chores and then the very end of the day i managed to get a couple of hours to go grouse hunting and the woods were kind of in that perfect you know uh, there's still some leaves up but there was a lot of leaves on the forest floor and it was that that smell, you know, of rotting leaves. And we had some rain the few, the few days before. So everything was, was uh, humid. And uh, there was, you know, it, it was just one of those perfect moments in the North woods, grouse hunting with my dog. And there was a point, uh, I think I was walking through some, uh, some poplar trees uh, where I just, I felt a, a level of relaxation that I really don't feel in any other type of hunting. And I, and it's part of it has to do with the habitat, you know, part of it I'm sure has to do with subconsciously hearkening back to when I was a kid with my father. Um, it's hard, it's hard to explain, but, but uh, a lot of people say, Hey, you know what? Nature is very therapeutic. You should spend more time in nature. Uh, and for me, that's definitely the case. I agree 100% with that without, without what I do in fall, without the passion for birds and what I do in spring and summer, like fishing camp, like camping, kayaking, canoeing, dog training. Those are all my escape from the stress of work, from the stress of my daily life. And without that. I don't know how I manage my mental health anymore, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I know, I know with, you know, with what we've been through for the last year and a half to two years, I'm so thankful that I'm a, I'm an outdoorsman because it's been a, a godsend for me in terms of, in terms of just staying balanced and staying mentally healthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, why don't you, I'll give you the next couple minutes here to, to thank anyone you want to thank, let anybody know how, how they can reach out to you and, or find your social media pages so they can give you a follow or a like. Oh gosh. I didn't, I, 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 I don't, I, now, now you put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I didn't prepare you for this. There was no, Oh, notes. I didn't know this was coming. Um, well, I, I think who do I thank? Well, uh, I thank all my, uh, the, the, the group of hunters that I've hunted with over the years, you know, they've enriched my life uh, immensely. They are some of my best friends. It's funny how that happens. The people you hunt with and you hunt with on a regular basis end up becoming your best friends. Um, I have to thank Todd, the guy that, that wrote the book. If uh, you know, we come from two very different worlds and if he didn't take some interest uh, in me, I would have missed out on, you know, 16 years of incredible experiences in Saskatchewan and meeting all the wonderful people that I've met in Saskatchewan. Um, and I, I would not be, I would not have enjoyed waterfowling to the, to the degree that I do enjoy it now. Sure. Um, and so I, you know, I was, 
I guess you could say I was I was born an uplander, and that still is my first love. Uh, but a very close second is waterfowling. Uh, and in terms of reaching me, uh, I don't know if, if your folks can see the feather underscore together. Can they see that? Uh, the ones that are on YouTube and that watch us on Facebook will. Otherwise, for everyone tuning in just to the audio and the podcast, it's feather underscore together. That's your Instagram, correct? That's right. I'm not a big social media guy. Um, I'm just a hunter that likes to hunt. And uh, Brad reached out to me. And once again, serendipity. It's funny how things work. <laughs> and so if somebody wants to touch base, they can they can check out my Instagram account. Or if they want to just follow pictures from your camp and dog work, I mean... Yeah, that that I always love this time of year when my Instagram feed just explodes from everybody coming like out of hibernation with and the dogs come back out and everything else and I get all excited for it because it's a great way to pass the time. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, you know. You look, I look forward to this time of this time all year, and uh, you know, for us up here, when you kind of get to the middle of December, the weather it depends. Every year is a little different, but we usually call it around the middle of December, the snow gets too, too high. And there's always a little sadness at the, you know, and so here we are, we're getting, we're, you know, we, I've still got a, you know, a good month and a half, two months before I get there. And so I'm going to try to enjoy every, every, every opportunity that I get. Absolutely. I was actually just talking to everybody about that. I'm like, I can't believe it. It's almost the end of October. Yeah. I look forward to the month of October all year. Cause that's when everything starts. That's girls camp. And I'm like, what happened here? It's already the 20th of October. I, I like where, where'd this month go? <laughs> yeah. Well, Guido, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's been great. It's, it's, it's great to hear the experiences and how traditions are completely different in other parts, but traditions are such a huge, important factor everywhere. Like when it comes to hunting groups and parties and it's great having you on. I really appreciate it. Listen, I love talking hunting and it's been a pleasure talking to you. I really it, it, it's been this has been fun i thank you you are welcome everyone out there listening tuning in i as always i appreciate all of you and until next time keep chasing that experience thanks for tuning in to another killer episode on paddle in finn don't forget to go check out our website at paddle the letter n in finn.com don't forget to check out the youtube channel at paddle and finn if you got a question comment want to hear from a future guest on a future episode feel free to email us at paddle the letter n in finn at gmail.com don't forget to follow us on social media at paddle and finn on facebook and instagram shout out to our show supporters angler the angler button and app just makes for a better time on the water and creates a virtual logbook for every fishing outing out on the water. Shout out to Rocktown Adventures, located in Northern Illinois, for all your kayaking, camping, and hiking needs. Shout out to Jigmasters Jigs. When in doubt, get the jig out. Go to jigmasters.com.